Welcome, everyone. I believe we are going to start on all the platforms today. We may head on over to Rumble at some point. Is that correct, Susan? We're starting everywhere? No. No. Oh, we're off your YouTube. Okay. We're, we're off gonna, at we're, YouTube. We're, we're not going to risk we're that. We're on all the other platforms. Fair enough. So no, we're still we suspended. usually go to. We are still suspended. Oh, great. Yes. Well, I'm going to have Caleb give we're us an update in after the intro. YouTube jail. Okay. I thought our after... friend K.A. said she'd bring a, a nail file to get us out of YouTube That's jail. That's really funny. Uh, today, very special guest, Dr. Robert Malone. Uh, you may have seen him on the Joe Rogan Experience. He's been around. He was one of the people that developed some of these technologies that we're using the vaccines today. He's got a lot of opinions, a lot of interesting ideas. We're going to mine them today. Uh, and we're going to give you an update, our, our, our own uh, YouTube status, our YouTube jailing, and where we are with that. There's been some communication in public on Twitter, and I'm hopeful that we can get restored. Also, there's new California law that is uh, profoundly disturbing uh, every physician I know. I'll give you a little primer on that right after this. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. And so first off, let me address this uh, California law that is going to make it um, nearly illegal for physicians to uh, be considered going public with anything that anybody considers misinformation. This is one of the more draconian legislative actions that we have seen so far against physicians and their ability to talk amongst themselves publicly. You're only going to be able to hear from the way this thing is structured, from bureaucracies and from you know, academic sorts of uh, pundit, not, not even pundits, ac academic uh, infrastructures. And the reality is, if you learn nothing from COVID, those often get it wrong, and they often take a long time to adjust their point of view, and they don't trust you and your doctor to do what's right for you. And that is disgusting, in my humble opinion. But because of that, it bears saying, again, in no way am I interested in promoting misinformation. Yesterday, I spent 45 minutes, I'd say, certainly 40 minutes, explicating my position. I recommend the MRA vaccine on a regular basis to my patients over the age of 65. We know the data is very clear. I've um, asked many of them to wait till the Omicron is available. I understand it's only been tested on mice, but I will be recommending it nonetheless. Again, this is all based on previous experience with flu vaccines. This is why we're going ahead with this. I think the risk reward is worth it. Many people don't believe so, but my patients, that's what we've done. Now, I personally had, a, as I mentioned yesterday, had a terrible reaction to the J&J &J vaccine. And now I'm being asked by the country of Spain, is that right, Susan? If we're gonna go there, I have to get another update. Um, it's not clear, there's my, uh, my spontaneous raccoon's eye, which I've pointed out several times, is the presenting feature of 
transverse sinus thrombosis, which is the dreaded complication of the J&J &J vaccine. And I thought I was going to be the only male with it. Turns out it must have been something in my cavernous sinus. It definitely was a consumptive coagulopathy of some type, but didn't cause any real clinical problem for me. And my immunity has been amazing. I've, I've been around Omicron a lot lately and I've been stuck in a room with Susan for three days with it and didn't get anything. I had it back in September. I dealt with yeah, it. Yeah, it wouldn't leave me that. alone. Yeah, about that. Uh, but in any event, uh, the point is our, our intention here is to have discourse amongst peers, to really get new ideas. I've already, you know, I spent a lot of the COVID pandemic, just going, just thinking to myself, what is happening? What is going on? How did we get here? What is going on? And by talking to some of my peers who have had some sort of um, direct exposure to some of the perhaps more nefarious, but the but the direct um, experience, like Dr. Bhattacharya and Dr. Malone and Dr. McCauley, you'll hear it in a minute, um, with the communications from the people who are making the decision, it's now increasingly clear what was going on. Now, I believe some of the, some of the decisions they made were grotesquely in error. Um, fine. They made mistakes. Uh, they, they stuck with those mistakes was really where things went off the rail. Uh, and I understand things better now by talking to my peers. Uh, you, as you know, Dr. Kelly Victor will be here with me, Dr. Malone. She and I disagree on particularly some of the vaccine therapies, some of the early therapies as well. As I, again, just to state my position again, which I did in great, great, great detail yesterday, I prescribed Paxlovid quite a bit. I know what I'm doing with it over the age of 65. I'm not sure what I'm doing with it under the age of 65. It reduces hospitalization and deaths over 65. It certainly shortens the duration of illness under 65. I've seen that. I mean, I've prescribed it 100, over 100 times, I'm sure. But maybe it affects immunity. Maybe it has some long-term issues. We don't know. These are all risk-reward analysis that I make on behalf of my patients. And I've not seen much from the the other early treatments. And I don't want. I guess we're not on YouTube, so I can actually say the names of them: hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Uh, but I don't uh, quarrel with doctors that want to prescribe that. And there was a nice review that came out today. It was in an online journal. It wasn't in a usual kind of journal, but it was a peer-reviewed journal that suggested there could be some prophylactic benefit. And again, let's look at the data, let's look at the science, and let's act accordingly. So let me next bring in Dr. Robert Malone. Dr. Robert Malone, virologist who worked on the development of mRNA vaccines. It has been a sharp shock uh, for me to come to terms with, with what modern propaganda and media manipulation really means. And we found out that the J&J &J product was causing blood clotting. A scientist to now have been cancelled by Twitter. And I don't want to alert the audience or, or scare you. My, I, I have no interest in spooking everybody and making a big kerfuffle. We didn't know what we know now about the adverse events. Uh, that was all hidden. Just because a group of engineers designed the 737 MAX, it doesn't mean that the Wright brothers didn't invent power flight. There has been a concerted campaign yeah. to write me out of history all the way through. Welcome, Dr. Robert Malone. Dr. Malone, thank you for being here. Uh, thanks for having me, Dr. Drew, and uh, for the opportunity to speak to your audience. 
Isn't it interesting you mentioned some of those clips about the uh, clotting effect of uh, the J&J vaccine? And I, I woke up on day two with a fever and body aches and headache and spontaneous <laughs> uh, bruising around my you know, periorbital, periorbital swelling, periorbital ecchymosis, I beg your pardon. And uh, you can imagine I was very worried when I saw that. Well, if you're going to open that can of worms, let's also note that in Europe, there is black box warnings associated with the uh, protein-based product from Novavax, uh, which also has the same spike protein. Of course, it's a well-known uh, um, adverse event associated with uh, both of the mRNA-based products also. So the uh, assertion that spike is not a toxin does not withstand uh, um, the test of time and uh, the literature also. The, the um, back-checking initially thrown against me when I mentioned this uh, on the Dark Horse podcast with Brett Weinstein so long ago was that there had been engineering of the spike protein to uh, eliminate the toxicity effects as the uh, genetic vaccines were engineered. That was uh, patently false. The engineering that was done in this is in this S1 subunit, um, and that engineering was designed not to change its toxicity, but to improve its immunogenicity. And of course, that the uh, um, free form of spike gets cleaved off and is sequence identical to the virally encoded one. And the literature demonstrating the toxicity of the virally encoded spike is rich and deep. Uh, and it involves not just coagulopathy, uh, binding to platelets, the associated uh, thrombocytopenia, autoimmune thrombocytopenia, the opening of uh, tight junctions, and so many other things. So your experience, I think it's important to uh, differentiate between the effects that is associated with the protein itself as opposed to the uh, gene delivery platform or polynucleotide delivery mm -hmm. platform. Agree, agreed. Let, let's put aside the, because I know Dr. K Victory wants to get into a lot of more detail on the vaccine story. I, I want to put that aside for just a second. Do me a favor, just so people understand who you are, sketch your academic credentials, and then I want to address one other topic before we bring Dr. Victory in. Uh, let's see. Uh, biochemistry, uh, UC Davis, uh, um, uh, master's degree, in lieu of PhD, I'd passed my thesis uh, exams or qualifying exams at UC San Diego and Salk Institute, uh, but at the time had had a series of discoveries, this is 87 to 89, that gave rise to a series of patents, and I got caught in a major patent battle uh, between the UCSD campus and the Salk Institute. Uh, but that's where I got my master's, and I was working in the laboratory of Dr. Indra Verma, one of the leading gene therapy experts in the world at the time, uh, and then um, completed my internship at UC Davis, completed my MD at Northwestern University, completed multiple fellowships, including uh, in pathology at UC Davis, uh, Sacramento Medical Center, and then completed a postdoctoral fellowship as a global clinical research scholar, and uh, which uh, allowed me to be designated as a graduate of Harvard Medical School. 
I've been a uh, academic assistant professor of pathology at UC Davis in New Maryland, Baltimore, an associate professor of pathology and surgery at Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. I've started multiple companies. Uh, I have uh, extensive experience in biodefense. I've won over well over a billion dollars in federal grants and contracts. I've often sat as study section chair, usually for larger contracts for the NIH, particularly NIAID. I have a deep and long uh, collaborative uh, relationship with the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences, as well as uh, uh, the uh, Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Uh, I have uh, around 100 publications, about 13,000 uh, citations. I'm listed on Google Scholar as exceptional, so that's the ranking of a, a senior uh, full professor. Uh, and um, uh, many, many patents, of which nine uh, originating in the late 80s cover the core technology of uh, mRNA expression, purification, uh, design for efficient uh, expression, delivery into cells and tissues, uh, and use of that mRNA as a, as a drug or for vaccine purposes. These are the uh, core patents that describe the mRNA vaccine technology. Uh, there is subsequent work that's been done. Uh, but of note is that the Carrico and Weissman patents that uh, are often cited uh, make absolutely no mention of use of pseudouridine-containing RNA for vaccine purposes, because that was all covered by the prior patents. Um, I've uh, been at the tip of the spear with a variety of projects, including bringing forth the Public Health Agency Canada vaccine that uh, um, for Ebola. And uh, that's now known as the Merck Ebola vaccine since I got it licensed to Merck. Uh, a number of uh, repurposed drug uh, discoveries relating to yellow fever and uh, Zika. Uh, and, 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 and you're you're just so I get it. You're you're a pathologist by training. You're, you had a pathology residency and a pathology fellowship. Is that how that worked? And of course, obviously, a biochemist as well. Pathology Research Fellowship, and I taught pathology for many years, about 15 years at Maryland, Baltimore, and uh, um, okay. um, and at uh, UC Davis. Okay. And, and then I, I want to talk for... <clears throat> in terms of practice, I've never practiced medicine. I'm yeah. a specialist yeah. in clinical research and regulatory affairs. I get it. Yeah, I get it. I understand. Uh, and now one thing you mentioned when you were on the Joe Rogan experience that made the rounds, and I just want to, want to before we bring Dr. Victory in again, just sort of have a brief aside about this construct, which was Dr. Desmet's notion of the mass formation psychosis. I had not really heard of that sort of put together that way until you started talking about it. And I listened to Dr. Desmet and I've seen what he printed about it. And at the time when I saw you talking about it, I was already thinking, Here's where my head was at, at the time. I thought, I was thinking, my God, we have had this narcissistic transformation in this country. I saw it happen personally. I worked in a psychiatric hospital for 30 years. I saw the trend, I saw the axis two become all cluster B over the course of 10 years and just stay there for 20 years. 
but I, we didn't see a lot of histrionic. And I thought, people are actually delusional now. They're actively delusional. Now, maybe they've been rendered delusional because of the press, spinning them into a fear state that caused the delusionality. Um, I don't think we've had a transformation in our personality construct. I don't see us as histrionic. We've been just behaving as though we are histrionic. And then Dr. Desmond uh, put together this construct that you referred to, he, he, and it, he was sort of, you know, calling upon the French Revolution and other sorts of historical moments, looking at what the characteristics were that led to people behaving like this. Are you still in that camp? You still feel like that's a, a reasonable co a construct for what we just been through, or what we're still going through? So I'm in the middle of a. It's now over 400 pages uh, book. Uh, trying to uh, help people with sense making uh, regarding what we've all been through over the last two and a half years. It's going to be coming out, and my purpose here is not to push it on your show, uh, but just to explain the context. Uh, this is to be published by Skyhorse and uh, Tony Lyons, which is Bobby Kennedy's uh, publisher. And I, I was uh, very involved in editing uh, Bobby's book on. Uh, Tony Fauci. So uh, I've, because I've been working on the book and using Substack as a way to serialize the chapters, I've spent a lot of time trying to think through and follow the various rabbit holes of what we've all experienced and why. This was the big questions that uh, Brett Weinstein posed to me so long ago. How has this happened to all of us and why? And uh, when I first heard Matthias speak, and just to get this point out of the way, um, uh, the terms uh, of art in this area, which has to do with crowd psychology, so it is not in the DSM, as you know, which is very focused yeah. on individual. Um, that was one of the criticisms is the term was not in the DSM. But uh, the... Uh, when I first heard Matthias speak, and he's now a good friend. Matter of fact, he's probably going to be here on the farm this weekend. He's currently with Dell Big Tree, and he just did a uh, lengthy interview with Tucker that apparently is quite something. Uh, please tell him I want to speak uh, with him too, please. Well, if you, I can enable that while he's here in the state. So be careful what right. you say. Thank you. Uh, he's going to be in. on. Uh, he's going to be on Bannon on uh, Friday morning. But uh, let me know when you want to talk to him when you're open. Okay. Um, Susan, so in any case, when I first heard uh, Matthias speak, like you, it was a bolt of lightning, suddenly something that had made no sense before in terms of the behavior of the general populace made sense. And I thought it was a fantastic hypothesis. It really clarified things. And one of the things that I love about it is that it allows many people uh, to have some peace to be able to forgive and understand their families that have been fragmented, their co-workers, et cetera. When I first spoke mm -hmm. about this to a large group at a mega church in Florida, it's like uh, 1,500 people, 2,000 people, um, I, I just riffed on it. Uh, McCullough had come on before and stolen all my thunder in terms of what I was going to talk about otherwise. So I just started <laughs> talking about extemporaneously about Matthias's hypothesis. Um, and I don't know, it just flowed straight out of my mouth. I don't know where it came from. But tears are rolling down people's face. 
it touches on mm. something uh, for those of us that have kind of been traumatized by what we've seen happen in our culture and with our former yeah. friends and colleagues that have become alienated. Uh, Matthias's hypotheses, and I, and I love him. I've spent so many hours with him. Uh, time in Spain, you, you had a little cut from the Headwind series there. Uh, and, and uh, um, you know, I've, I, I've spent a lot of time with Matthias, stayed in his home, uh, was just visiting him in Belgium three weekends ago, I think it was. And he'll be here, like I said, this, this weekend. But it's not the only explanation. And I concur with you strongly that there is a substantial uh, psychological underpinning that we've all experienced here. And some of it mm -hmm. involves the weaponization of information via the media. And that's part of what Matthias touches on. And I think we need to acknowledge that Matthias stands on the shoulders of many great uh, 19th and 20th century philosophers. And the idea of the mass formation really traces all the way back to the parable of the cave that is in Plato's Republic. Uh, mm. This is a very old observation. And uh, of course, Gustave Le Bon and, and his work and Hannah Arndt is the immediate predecessor to Matthias. Hence why I spoke about the uh, exemplar of what happened in Nazi Germany. The press, of course, inferred that I was somehow calling the press and Mr. Biden Nazis because I was speaking of the uh, literature and us in scientific investigations to try to comprehend this crowd phenomena or, you know, mm -hmm. just to get the nomenclature right. Uh, it's the terminology, because this is another thing that's been criticized, the historic terminology is uh, mass formation, which is a European term. It's translated, and it refers to the formation of crowds and crowd behavior. Right. Mm -hmm. And another uh, term of art in this is mass psychosis, which we would call in English the crowd madness of crowds. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, one of the early podcasts with Matthias, the podcaster, titled it Mass Formation Perens Psychosis, uh, because the two terms of art are interchangeable. And so that's why I started using the term mass formation psychosis. Uh, Matthias has mm -hmm. forgiven me then for having done that, uh, probably because uh, by saying it on Joe Rogan, it catapulted him onto the world stage. Uh, and of mm -hmm. course, now he has a book out which uh, is in part designed to address the many critics that asserted that he was not academically qualified, that there was no academic basis for this. I've just cited some of the key prior academic uh, references, but uh, uh, Matthias's book, Not to Push That, is, is The Psychology of Totalitarianism in the English title. Uh, and that's readily available over Amazon, and you can read it for yourself. But it's not the only one. There's another fantastic uh, book that was written by someone that experienced the uh, Iron Curtain environment called uh, um, Political Ponderology. Uh, and there is, of course, one of my favorites, Victims of Groupthink, the work of Irving Janus, I think, explains a lot of what we saw transpire with this small insular in-group that was ostensibly led by Mike Pence, but in reality led by Deborah Burks. And the, the uh, 
as I went back to this political science treatise that was developed by one of your colleagues in the in the um, uh, psychological world, uh, uh, um, coming from his academic work looking at the behavior of small groups. Uh, uh, he makes a, Irving Janus makes a series of predictions about the behaviors of these small insular in-groups that when I went back and reviewed it, just because of kind of intellectual curiosity and I knew I was going to have to give a talk, I found that it, it, the predictions that Janus made based on his case studies of American decision-making and policy decision-making were dead on the uh, rejection and attacks of outsiders, such as the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration and Scott Atlas, were absolutely predicted in Janus's work. And then I think we get down to the level of the individual. And I think there's also an element of Dunning-Kruger, another thing that feeds into the mm-hmm. discipline of psychology. For sure. Uh, For um, sure. And uh, I think uh, Dr. Burke's and to some extent, I'm sorry, Dr. Fauci, uh, have uh, the hubris of uh, um, individuals who uh, believe in their uh, uh, intellectual capabilities, uh, which uh, that belief doesn't seem to be well aligned with their actual performance. And well, I'm trying to be diplomatic. <laughs> it's it's interesting to me that. Uh the sort of classic canon, Le Bon. Le bon has two books, uh, The Crowd and Revolution. There is The Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, and there's Janus. These were all under attack right about the time this all happened. And I noticed that the attack stopped when the, when the reality actually mirrored precisely what everyone in those classic observational books were, were, uh, were observing. What, what is Janus's book name again? I, I'm going to get it immediately. What is his name, the book again? of group think was the original one it's out of print and he's passed away unfortunately i wish he was here to to share with us his insights and then he did a Mm -hmm. follow-up edition just called group think that added a chapter that was a case study of watergate uh which also Mm -hmm. fits in his modeling um so i i think that there's another one that we need to acknowledge which is the book about nudge which uh, came out a few years ago mm-hmm. and has mm-hmm. really spread throughout the world, particularly through governments. And the BBC has embraced it, uh, and intelligence communities have embraced it, and the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization have embraced the logic of nudge technology. And uh, frankly, you were there in the belly of the beast in Pasadena, uh, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think we can make a case that Hollywood and much of California is suffering from the effects of nudge technology. Uh, and uh, there's a variety of pejorative terms uh, that are very uh, politically skewed, uh, but I'm going to say one of them just to kind of provide a link. Uh, the term that's often used by some parts of the political spectrum is wokeism. But I think a lot of what we attribute as wokeism and that culture is really the consequence of the uh, deployment of nudge technology. I think there's other factors in there too. I think that the you're you're exactly right. As as I have tried to make sense out of what we've all experienced and capture it as chapters and make it 
available to folks that don't have an academic background. What I've found is the, you know, we can go down these various rabbit holes of Klaus Schwab and and uh, who's made himself into a cartoon uh, Bond character. Uh, but and and we can talk about Tedros and we can talk about the administrative state and all these things and and the role of of the central banks and the economics and all that. But underneath all of that, there's some really profound psychological uh, um, unhealthiness. Let's say. Yeah, that, that I, I agree. I, I I was saying I what I was saying initially was. If if in 2018 you had come to me and said there's a Russian operative in the Oval Office and I'm seeing Nazis everywhere, I would put you in a hospital. That's what I would do. And and uh, suddenly I was hearing everybody talk like that in many different domains, and I thought, wow, don't people don't understand this is this is delusional, it's delusional thinking. But we have to take a break. Uh, two things I want to do. Well, three things. I want to take a break. We're gonna come back with Dr. Malone. I'm going to have you explain nudge technology, but before you do, I'm going to welcome Dr. Victory in because I hear her there wanting to get in on this conversation very badly. So we'll do that after this quick break. I think we have found the holy grail of skincare. Genucel has absolutely changed, certainly my skincare regimen. I like that vitamin C serum, the under eye creams, skin nourishing primer. Susan loves the eyelash enhancers, uses it on her eyebrows as well. Genucel has everything to make us both feel and look amazing. Best part, the quality of the products. Using pure ingredients like antioxidants, copper peptides, and a proprietary calendula flower base, Genucel knows how to formulate products to perfection without irritation. For Susan, she hates that annoying dry area under nose during allergy season, like right here. She's tried everything, but no matter what, the skin is flaky and dry. Nothing seemed to help until she started using Genucel's Silky Smooth XV Moisturizer. It soaked right into the skin, she was hooked after one use and now loves all of their products as well. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to Genucel, I was so happy because it's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time and I'm so excited because it's actually working. Right now, you can try Genucel's most popular collection of products and see what I'm talking about for yourself. Go to Genucel.com and enter code DREW for 10% off. That is G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com, and the code is D-R-E-W. The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise, for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7, a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh, boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> he came right. 
But there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis versicolor mushroom, which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's non-addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com, P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, petclub247. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. This episode ends here. The rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate of public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. And this is Dr. Kelly Victory. Welcome, Kelly, to uh, this interesting interview with Dr. Malone. Before I let you launch into, I felt you there, wanted to get at stuff. <laughs> let me have him just explain nudge technologies because people are asking about that on the restream and over, over at Rumble and stuff. So Dr. Malone. Uh, so nudge is, there's a book out. I forget what it's, nudge is just the first word. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, and it's actually in its third volume right now. It's become uh, really widely accepted in uh, both governments, uh, non-governmental organizations, and the intelligence community. And the simplest uh, example I can use of nudge technology, just to illustrate the point, is that in Amsterdam uh, toilets for men, urinals, there's little stickers of a fly. And uh, I think the general audience can appreciate that that causes uh, those using those urinals to try to uh, um, point at the fly with their urine stream. It's very effective at reducing the need for cleaning in airport bathrooms in the Amsterdam on Schiphol. So there's one example. A more sophisticated example involves the use, careful use of language and broadcasting to normalize things which uh, we might wish to have for the best reasons uh, as public health practices or other community practices. So uh, the British uh, were quite good at using subtle cues to discourage tobacco smoking in the UK, and that really had a huge positive impact on public health in the UK. You'll also notice in the British Broadcasting Corporation productions throughout the UK, and now increasingly in places like Netflix, that we have this uh, gradual uh, use of uh, a variety of different kind of social interactions having to do with people of different ethnic backgrounds or races or gender orientations, et cetera. And a lot of that is designed to kind of uh, allow us as a community to become desensitized to things that we might not normally encounter in our, in our average life so that we don't have the uh, prejudices or in, and kind of social reactions that are dysfunctional that we might otherwise have just as natural human beings. So that's another example of nudge technology. A more sophisticated one has to do with the use of language and the creative use of language alluding to things which we already have pre-baked 
uh, reactions to. So uh, these various terms that have really been very aggressively deployed uh, that are intended to evoke a visceral reaction within us and create a connection between one concept or idea and another one. So an example of that is far right. Uh, and often far right is coupled with Nazi. And uh, then that's often coupled with fascist. And these are actually real political science terms that are abused widely in order to evoke visceral emotional reactions in the listener. So just to clarify and, and amplify on the point, uh, fascism is not just a casual term to throw around at our enemies. It is not a bunch of young men uh, marching in Charlottesville uh, with tiki torches. It's a political system that involves the alliance and cooper close cooperation between large corporations and the nation state, what we might call in current euphemisms, public-private partnerships. Public-private partnerships are fundamentally fascist in the classical definition in political science of what is fascism. So we see these various terms, conditions, and subtle nudges that are designed to influence all of our behavior in a gradualistic way, rather than saying, thou shalt not do this, uh, we're going to prohibit uh, this action or that action as, as a sin or whatever. It's been shown through behavioral research that the behavior of populations can be affected in a in very uh, accurately through deployment of this kind of technology language, etc., in a variety of different media streams and in uh, language that's used commonly. So I hope that helps. Uh, but the easiest yeah. one is the or the fly in the in the urinals in Schiphol Airport. Yeah, and it also bleeds over to neurolinguistic processing and persuasion sort of ideas, which is hypnot, which is into the field of hypnosis. There's a lot going on that people are using that people aren't aware of. Doctor Victory, you're on. You're, I'll give you the. I'll give you well, the podium. You, you stole you stole my thunder by starting with the uh, mass formation psychosis. I was going to end with that, and I could certainly spend the whole show talking about that with Dr. Malone. Uh, Dr. Malone, Drew knows I, I was a psychologist before I was a physician. And I have a particular specialty uh, in the formation of mobs and of uh, and of group psychology. Uh, it's interesting because you know, the the group yeah, a group is made up of individuals up until the point that it's not, uh, and when it becomes a mob, and when all of mm -hmm. a sudden it is no longer a group that is thinking like people with independent thought and will, right. and it becomes Violence a very different beast. Uh, and, and unfortunately, um, there are people who have become expert at being able to control the mob. They actually um, push to have the mob be formed. I, I teach a class on uh, leadership in times of crisis, and it's all about keeping people as individuals because it's only as individuals mm. that they can employ critical thinking and that they can help to get themselves out of what I call the basement of fear. Uh, once they become mm. a mob, it's a very different thing. And, and we have uh, around mm. much of the world become a mob during this pandemic. Um, but I want to go, I w really want to spend some time talking about um, the issues of vaccines in general, 
uh, you clearly have been on the cutting edge, the bleeding edge of mRNA technology for decades. Um, and one many, of the things that other, I think- Many other I'm vaccine sorry? technology. Yes. Many other yes. vaccine so, technology. And, and so I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to speak for you. I speak for myself. I say, I am not an anti-vaxxer, whatever that is. Uh, I am actually quite pro-vaccine. I've been called a vaccine zealot in years past because I have spoken and written prolifically on the importance of vaccines. My concern is with these particular vaccines. And one of the things that I wanted to really ask you about is given your deep background uh, in mRNA technology, it's been around for, for decades, why is it that we'd never had had a mRNA vaccine launched on the publics? Not for lack of trying, as I understand it, but why were these COVID vaccines the first mRNA vaccines to get launched to the public? Okay, so that's going to take a good half an hour. I'll try to compress it. <laughs> uh, one of the things that happened early on with those patents, uh, and understand I never got any financial benefit. Uh, the total budget allocated for that Skunk Works project at Vical was about $40,000, including my uh, um, salary as a technician. And I received one Susan B. Anthony dollar for my contributions. So I just want to set the record straight. When I left to finish my last two years of med school, I left Vical uh, um, uh, for Northwestern uh, for my last two years. And uh, what happened was that they didn't have any expertise there in the shop to make uh, the uh, high yield, high purity mRNA that I'd been manufacturing. And uh, this was outside of the core focus of the company. The company was built for antivirals and calcitonin analogs, hence the name. Uh, it was built around a Burroughs Welcome contract for liposomal uh, dideoxynucleotides to treat HIV. And so this was really an aside. It was outside of the core business model. And the uh, chief executive officer and, and financial officer decided to license it out to generate some cash. And they convinced Maurice Hillman, the legendary Merck vaccinologist, to purchase the rights to what had been done. And the terms and conditions were, it, it had already been reduced to practice in both for influenza and in HIV antigens. And the terms that Merck executed was they paid, I forget, 40 million or something for it. And uh, they required that all credit for the discoveries and subsequent development go to the Merck team. And Merck took it. Uh, this gave rise to Margaret Liu and her folks and their publications subsequently in science. And they really couldn't make the mRNA. They didn't think it was commercially viable. They didn't think it would be stable. They focused on the DNA. They never actually built a functional DNA vaccine. Billions were invested in this, both in Vicel and Merck. But what they did do was aggressively prevent anybody else from developing the mRNA technology, including myself. I got a nasty letter when I was an academic. Uh, that I should not continue pursuing anything having to do with my prior discoveries. So it basically sat on the shelf in kind of a pocket veto until the patents expired. And uh, companies such as CureVac independently started working on the idea many years later 
uh, Carrico and uh, Drew Weissman had their pseudouridine discoveries about a decade afterwards at Penn, after speaking to me and getting some advice. Uh, but uh, Vical and Merck aggressively kept anybody else from developing it. Then the patents expired and DARPA decided that they agreed with some of the papers that I had written, particularly together with Dr. Annie DeGroote of Epivax, advocating that this technology could enable rapid response, which is a major problem in the biodefense space uh, with vaccines. Uh, the intention was more for special forces and small groups, so small custom-made vaccines for emerging infectious disease or engineered pathogens. And DARPA dumped money, particularly into Moderna, uh, DARPA being an, basically an arm of the CIA. And even now in the present, the new manufacturing facility that's just been stood up in Canada is funded by InQtel, which is the uh, investment fund arm of the CIA. So our intelligence community is all over this and pushing this forward. And they've been doing so for about the last 10 years. And uh, the logic is that there is a huge unmet need for the ability to respond rapidly to an infectious disease threat. And I think that there, there was a number of failures at Moderna, as you correctly point out. Uh, they never really settled on the vaccine indication. This is kind of Johnny come lately to this. And also at uh, BioNTech, there was an effort to move this forward and at CureVac. CureVac did, uh, actually got investment funds from Elon Musk. Uh, the others got different sources of capital. BioNTech is funded in part by the German government. And uh, then we had the run-up to this event. And let's not get in down the rabbit hole of uh, event 201 and the pre-planning and the patents uh, that David Martin has pointed out and the fact that Bill Gates made major investments in these companies in a remarkably prescient way. Uh, but it all happened. Uh, the data, you know, the facts are the facts. We just don't know what was inside of their heads. Uh, so I'm not going to go there and I suggest we don't either. But, uh, but it happened. And uh, there was uh, this uh, governmental uh, thrust in trying to advance this technology. And then uh, for some reason, the strange decision that all of the regulatory norms that have existed for vaccines and gene therapy, because this is both, would be basically thrown out the door and uh, all of this would be ex uh, expedited in a mad rush to try to get something uh, while meantime preventing any other alternatives because it would uh, compromise the emergency use authorization pathway. I think that all of that is very well documented, what I've just said. And, and uh, I don't think that uh, the LA Times or the New York Times or the Washington Post can criticize any of those no, I, I agree with all of that, and I am not prone to conspiracy theories, uh, but one has to come to the conclusion, uh, if you've been watching this and has been involved in this from the beginning, as I have been, uh, that the singular push 
for these vaccines. Uh, the the ability, you know, the therapeutic nihilism, the fact that we were not even allowed to talk about uh, readily available, inexpensive, effective therapeutics like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and steroids, that we weren't allowed to promote the simplest of things like supplementing vitamin D and zinc and things we knew would have a profoundly positive effect, one really has to come to the conclusion that there was something else driving this singular desire to get the mRNA uh, technology across the uh, finish line and frankly, to make it a household name, if you if you want my opinion. But I will, I will respect your, uh, your, your suggestion that we not go too far down uh, that that rabbit hole. I want to ask you specifically about. It is go ahead. I mean, the, the World Economic Forum has their written publications, and you can read Klaus Schwab's uh, remarkably mm -hmm. uh, clutched, naive uh, book, uh, scientifically uh, uh, questionable all the way through it. Uh, but there is the logic uh, stated in public documents. Uh, by these various organizations that uh, the uh, advancement of this technology and getting acceptance in the public to yeah. administration and, and uptake of a polynucleotide-based uh, intervention vaccine is the easiest one, uh, will then allow uh, further future uh, development of pharmaceuticals that would uh, act through modification of genome or other yes. other exploitation of genetic information. And uh, it's been remarkable that uh, the public, particularly the European public, which has been so sensitive to genetically modified organisms, has allowed themselves to all become genetically modified organisms. So we'll just <laughs> leave it at that. How about that? <laughs> I have said the same thing. I said that the same people who would not eat a GMO tomato uh, have rolled up their sleeves for uh, three and four shots. Uh, but I want to ask you specifically, you were, I don't want to say promoting, but at least advertising or, or letting people know about a, um, an event that happened yesterday uh, with an FAA whistleblower uh, with regard to uh, vaccine injuries that have occurred uh, in pilots, um, and some question about whether the FIA, FAA has been complicit in really allowing them to um, to sort of bypass the the routine um, you know regulations with regard to untested vaccines in pilots. Uh, Drew and I, I'll, I'll say, you know, Drew and I disagree quite a bit on the safe, both the safety and efficacy of these vaccines uh, and have from the beginning, I believe that we have an overwhelming number of adverse events that have happened all across the world um, and they fall into lots of different categories. Um, but the concern specifically about potential injuries to pilots and what that means from a public hate, uh, safety perspective. So talk a little bit about that if you know, I don't know how much you know about that event. I wasn't able to participate in it, um, but I heard about it first actually through an email from you. So this has been ongoing now, and that email must have come through the Substack. Uh, so thank you for that, uh, and, and thank you for being a subscriber. Uh, I, I wasn't aware of that. And and just to give you a little fun uh, aside, uh, Tony Fauci and Cliff Lane also both read the Substack. That's a fascinating fact. <laughs> uh, so we'll just leave that alone. Um, the this issue of 
the uh, pilots organizations, both within the United States and internationally, uh, has been one that I've been very aware of now for well over a year. And uh, there, because of commercial and public safety interests, there has been a clear suppression of information about this. This also relates to the whistleblower case uh, of the um, lieutenant colonel in the Department of Defense, who is a flight surgeon, who uh, had was was made aware of the re- remarkably high incidence of cardiovascular events in young uh, trainee uh, pilots. Uh, she's in a rotary wing uh, division, I think, in Alabama or Georgia. Uh, so. Uh, There is also another organization based out of the UK, which has had similar observations. In general, the uh, uh, flight surgeon and oversight community uh, globally uh, is um, uh, generally, other than the flight surgeon physicians who are very attuned to what they're observing uh, in the pilots, having to do with uh, cardiovascular events, stroke, um, elevated uh, troponin, and other signals, because these pilots are subjected to quite rigorous uh, routine analysis, thank God for all of us. Uh, But the uh, case is made that uh, in terms of the statutes, the uh, national regulatory authorities, including the Federal Aviation Administration here in the United States, but also in other nation states, has a a mandate to ensure that any vaccine products that are administered and other medical products that are administered to pilots are well characterized as being safe and effective. And uh, they have deferred to the positions taken by uh, health and Human Services in the United States and the various national health authorities, and have required these experimental products to be administered to pilots. Pilots, in general, as I mentioned, have been very sensitized to the cardiac events, and many of them have have experienced it. Is why there has been a hemorrhage of talent. Sorry, that's a bad word. A a uh, let's say a diaspora of particularly senior pilots from many of these. Uh, commercial carriers is because of pilots being aware of the uh, cardiovascular complications that are at an alarmingly high rate. Because if they, if they go to their flight surgeon and uh, describe that they have had heart pain or other symptoms or dizziness or whatever, they'll be grounded and they'll likely completely right. lose the ability to practice their profession. I, I, Just like you guys you were I, to say, but I, I want to drill into getting- this a little bit because because we're we're tossing around data. I'm going to make sh- I'm going to make sure we ground it in data we have. So you know we don't have the data yet on the dizziness and the so-called pot syndrome. The you know the sort of the dizziness and the passing out. I I think that's going to end up being much higher than we understood. But pots is probably associated with myocarditis and also can be independent of myocarditis. The only data I know of on myocarditis that is really good is the recent circulation article 
where they were comparing you know adverse events in people with covid versus vaccinated alone and they found essentially a five times higher rate of myocarditis in men under 40. And I've heard other people who have been looking at that data saying that it might be substantially higher in the 15 to 25 age group, but just lumping them all under 40 put it at roughly five times the risk of COVID. But the risk was still tiny, okay? This is the part I want to kind it of drill tiny. into. The, look, look at the, the, the study out of Thailand, though. The study out of Thailand... Go ahead, Dr. Yeah. Malone. This, Dr. Malone. Those data that you to in that study represent gross underreporting. Um, what's yeah. observed in the aviation community, and, and understand, for instance, this is not public. Uh, Southwest Airlines now pairs vaccinated with unvaccinated pilots. Uh, there was an incidence of a vaccinated pilot uh, flying an Airbus, which apparently is a left handed. Uh, um, flight for the main pilot in terms of the controls, uh, who had a stroke, left-sided stroke, and was unable to fly the plane. Uh, so in the aviation community, and then of course, there are the many reports of adverse events and cardiac events in the military community, but those right. data have been actively manipulated. And uh, there, yes. when it came out, uh, after Teresa Long, uh, just did the data analysis and pulled that out, then there was very active real-time manipulation. So I caution Dr. Drew that uh, I appreciate the sensitivity with the audience and the need to stay database. But uh, in let's just say this, in that uh, the testimony provided uh, for that FAA whistleblower, Case, which was the focus of that meeting. Um, there are a number of documents which are readily available for your review or that for your audience that you could link here. And all of those links in those documents are readily available through the Substack and through the uh, disclosures. I also have a very detailed uh, legal brief concerning this uh, that was prepared by a lawyer here in Virginia who practiced in toxicology law in D.C. for many years. And I'd be glad to make that available. It's going into the book and it has uh, 130 different references. Uh, so, so to your point, uh, I completely concur that we need to stay database, but to recognize that we're talking about forward-looking risk and the problem with relying exclusively on quote, evidence-based medicine uh, involving these large data analyses in which by the admission of the CDC, uh, they have been withholding data uh, and have been reporting things in a way that is politically skewed, according to the New York Times. Uh, we do have to, I think, for the interests of, of safety and transportation safety, I suggest that it's more prudent to be a little more proactive, particularly with pilots. Over. Well, if, and, if I could, if yeah, I could I, summarize what was... I'm hearing, and you guys, but the, I want you guys to tell me if what I'm hearing is accurate. So we are we are slowly getting increasingly clear data about very isolated questions, which is how research works, right? Is what is the rate of myocarditis in COVID versus the vaccine? 
what is we haven't yet looked at stroke or pots or other other thrash, other uh, consumptive coagulopathies. We just don't have that data yet. And what I'm hearing you say, and I think this is true, is because there appears to be a protean range of problems that could affect particularly functioning, it is very relevant to somebody flying an airplane. May not be medically relevant necessarily. It may prove to be. We don't have that data yet, but it's certainly relevant to the safety of the 300 people on an aircraft when somebody has even a potential of an adverse event that could affect functioning in a real way. Is that about way to say it? Say it accurately, and that there'll more information will be forthcoming. Well, I think that that's I think that that's certainly true with regard to public safety, um, but I think that you are underestimating the amount of data that's actually out there with regard to these events. I was permanently banned from Twitter specifically for posting the sworn testimony of three career military physicians who looked retrospectively at the incidents of certain events, everything from pulmonary embolisms to uh, Bell's palsy and specifically myocarditis and pericarditis. And they compared those things to the incidents uh, that occurred in calendar year 2021, actually only 11 months of it, and found these remarkable increases in the incidence of all of these things. Furthermore, I think, frankly, one of the most compelling bits of data is the study out of Thailand that was a prospective study. Yeah, they looked at 301 13 to 18-year-olds. They had not had COVID. They were negative for antibodies. They did extensive yeah. cardiac workups on these kids prior to vaccine. None of them had EKG abnormalities or lab abnormalities. And following vaccination, 29.4%, almost 30%, had cardiac abnormalities following vaccination. That is a prospective study. It doesn't get much better than that. So then I think when you tie it together to the idea that somebody is in charge of flying this bus that 300 yeah, people no, are I'm sitting on, I, uh, I get it, it. it's a big deal. And let me, let me also, again, so people can conceptualize the frame here clinically. I, I, I'll I let like Dr. Long talk in just a second. <laughs> Which is, let me just let me just uh, push back a little bit by saying because that's my job here is to say that of those 20 30 percent of kids that got myocarditis they all recovered but let me say that if i saw a kid with myocarditis in 2018 that would be a dire medical emergency these can have profound complications right. and we don't know yet the long-term effects so that's the context Correct. of all this can I, dr malone can i comment on the all recovered um, uh, there's a lot of dissent about that thesis. Uh, the, as you know, uh, Dr. Drew, uh, the prognosis for clinical myocarditis in classical clinical myocarditis is not particularly good on a five-year horizon. And, That's right. uh, we, we are, what I'm hearing from my clinical colleagues uh, Dr. McCullough is one great example, but many others, is that what they're observing in terms of the complications seems to be tracking more along the lines of classical clinical myocarditis. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I think we are, there's a risk here of uh, minimizing the data and the import of the data because it's inconvenient. Uh, to think otherwise, but we do have uh, Kelly. Uh, I'm sure just uh, because she was more focused on the recent data, 
didn't mention the mm -hmm. prior, I think it was the Hong Kong study in young males that gave us the initial rate of about one in 2,500 hospitalized myocarditis. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember that. And uh, that was a very comprehensive study. So I, I think as, I, again, I'm just struck uh, by Dr. Victory's ability to succinctly summarize uh, in a way that I'm very aligned with, which is that um, in I, I, I think that particularly in the case of these individuals that have the responsibility of hundreds of individuals, uh, not the least of which is me flying on these tubes all the time, uh, yeah. who ensure safety. And uh, there has been these uh, ladies and gentlemen have been subjected to the same mandates as everyone else. And uh, they and their flight surgeons, as well as in the DOD, are reporting um, what they perceive as clinically alarming outcomes in, in uh, their patients. And uh, we may not have that yet synthesized as a comprehensive analysis. And Dr. Drew, I, you, I hope that you have not been subjected to the environment that I have over the last couple of years. Uh, the ability to get anything published in uh, that is at all controversial in the yeah uh, I know uh, they, listen uh, I, we can't even talk about it that, that's why yeah, we're here uh, today we've been we've been told and well, I find that reprehensible and and I so but I, I always see my job is to sort of mix it up a little bit so we do have debate we do have just you know so people see that we can you can disagree you can have different ideas I I actually totally agree with you about the the pilots I, that mortifies me well, <laughs> but, and, and let's it's not just it's it's not just myocarditis we should be focusing on uh, i i agree with you there is no such thing as a quote yeah. mild case of of uh, myocarditis once you've scarred the heart yeah. muscle it does not unscar no, it, it, it was a, it's a dire emergency failure, that we're treating now we Correct. treat it now like a like a hives, like a urticarial rash or something. But it is a dire, no, a dire no. event, myocarditis. But, let's be clear. But, but, but you guys, but Kelly, we only have like we have like ten minutes to go here, and so I want us to okay. really choose our topics very carefully. I'll give you a chance, and then I'm going to go. And I bet we're out of time by that point. So go ahead, Doctor Victory. Uh Okay, well, I'll just say just very briefly, the uh, culling of the data that just showed a massive increase in risk of new onset seizure or in new onset seizures following vaccination. Mm. Uh, if, you look just at yeah. the VAR, if you look just at the VAERS data um, and, and you compare the comparing apples to apples, comparing incidents of uh, new onset seizures following other vaccines, the, the new onset seizures following the COVID vaccines as reported to VAERS is 35.4 times higher than new onset seizures reported after any other vaccination. Um, now, whether or not just because something's reported to VAERS, everybody knows or should know that is not de facto evidence that the event is related necessarily to the vaccine. But when you see a 35 times increase in something, you better be seeing those red flags and you darn well better what be you doing call a the signal. deep analysis. Yeah, it's what you call a signal. And if you're a physician, uh, a scientist, one of the things you're supposed to look at is patterns uh, and aberrations of that sort. Um, so, you know, these are, it's not just myocarditis that will take a, a pilot down and possibly the airplane he's flying. Yeah. Uh, a, new, no, a, a seizure that's, in the cockpit that's why it really also is me. kind of yeah. right oh, up that, there with that, bad yeah, things. I agree. 
doing it so that Airbus uh, report also is it seizure, stroke, uh, myocarditis. There's a variety of other coagulopathies. And we haven't even touched on the long-term consequences that my friend, uh, Dr. Ryan Cole, has uh, been oh, so astoundingly uh, harassed for. He's lost his practice now. He's had to sell his practice because of speaking out. Um, he's an enormously uh, competent, skilled, well-trained pathologist. Uh, and uh, we, we see these very odd uh, blood clots. Um, and he has come up with some uh, uh, histopathology diagnostic criteria for that. But, but the, the observations, again, are anecdotal at this point, and I don't wish to be alarmist, mm -hmm. as none, none of us do. But yes. uh, the uh, pathologists, uh, the uh, oncologists, and the oncologic surgeons are increasingly reporting an anecdotal observation maybe it's biased because there's a suggestion now of watching for these things but the the uh, number of mitoses in a high-powered field in a uh, pathologic slide is not something that is a figment of one's imagination right and there does right. seem to be right. this rise in a number of these other uh, diagnoses that i think we have to keep careful watch on but but we wanted to talk. You wanted to talk about the cardiac events and the pilots, and and I I suggest that what you might want to do if this gets archived is to provide the link uh, to yeah, we'll uh, get those the links. various. We will get the links. Yeah, and uh, Kelly, I'm going to rely on you the, to send that to us. Yeah, I will. Let the yeah, I'm happy have to. to. But but in, in the remaining minutes, I I. I, I, and in, what's, what's so extraordinary about all this, and it's pertinent to the pathologist you're just talking about, is what the hell happened to us? What, I still ask that question, even though I sort of have more information now about what was going on and the conscious use of fear and the Fauci and his gang silencing people like yourself and Dr. Bhattacharya and the, the, the drive to the vaccine and then vaccine uberalis after that. But, but, it's so far from the medicine that the three of us have practiced are, you know, we must have 120 years of medicine amongst us. And, you know, right. Dr. Malone more on the research side, you and I more on the clinical side. What in the world do you think really, when we nail it down, Dr. Malone, what, other than the mass formation and only, do you have a theory about what, what went wrong with us? So it's important to me because of my own personal history to make sure that one credits uh, people with their contributions. Uh, Peter McCullough was the first one that I have heard forward the thesis that physicians were on the front lines. They were the first recipients of the jabs. And uh, with that, they kind of psychologically had buy-in to the safety and effectiveness because they had accepted these. There are clearly... Uh, multiple financial drivers that are creating conflicts of interest, not the least of which, you know, we're all, uh, gently put, more senior than the majority of physicians. And the vast majority of younger physicians these days are non-U.S. born. I'm saying this gently. Uh, and this is just a fact of medical schools now. And medical schools now are very focused on training to protocol. So uh, we grew up mm -hmm. in an era yep. in which we were trained to uh, 
uh, be kind of uh, investigative uh, intellectuals. Yes, exactly. And to mm -hmm. solve problems, those of you that are internists, uh, not so much surgeons. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't say that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but surgeons um, are still allowed to improvise in the surgical field. And I noticed they were doing more improvising during COVID than anyone else. Well, I'll tell you who has been at the forefront, paradoxically, of the early treatment has been the primary care docs and the integrative medicine people. They have turned out to be the heroes here. They've been willing to experiment to try to keep their patients out of the hospital. The hospitalists, it's, I think it's important for the public to understand that the vast majority of our peers no longer operate as sole entrepreneurs, private entrepreneurs running their own practice. Right. They are employed by large corporations and those large corporations are not managed by physicians anymore. They're managed by MBAs and accountants and such like. That's right. And uh, yep. they're told what to do and when to do it. And if you mm -hmm. uh, don't toe the line, uh, you can uh, don't let the door hit you in the bum on the way out. Yep. And that's kind of been the way things have gone. And, and for those of us, and my heart goes out to the younger physicians that are, I mean, I graduated with $300,000 in debt and I got it paid off in my fifties. <laughs> These poor souls are coming out with mega debt. Um, they're trying to start young families. They're in a wicked economic environment. They're forced to go work for big corporate America right. uh, and mm -hmm. do what they're told and toe the line. And if they don't, they're out on their bum with a massive yep. debt this load. what I thought. Uh, yep. And compromising their families and uh, the reproductive prospects and their entire career. I mean, Paul Merrick has, uh, the chapters in my book from folks like Paul Merrick are just heartbreaking. Um, the mm. These uh, mm -hmm. various uh, kind of interrogation committees that are set up in hospitals to reinforce whatever the party line is. And uh, mm -hmm. our poor physician colleagues that are coming up, uh, they're faced with a world in which they're expected to follow rigid protocols, including the protocols that are promoted now by the organizations which traditionally have had no role in setting medical right. standards and still have right. no role in setting medical standards. They have no role in establishing community standard of care. Um, and, uh, but we have, uh, I, I, I'm going to say the word emasculated. It's, uh, I'm not saying that in a gender biased way, uh, right. as, yeah. as a yeah. community by these corporate overlords and we're not allowed to practice medicine. And, and so the, the bright, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, maybe, maybe it's the train coming at us is the <laughs> movement now back by many, uh, to uh, go back into a more private practice environment yeah. and kind of <clears throat> tell I the hope. corporation no. And to, to, this, to, to, to touch on this a little bit, understand this same thing is happening all over the Western world, okay? Same mm -hmm. exact thing. Right. It's not just the United States, okay? I travel a lot. Mm -hmm. And colleagues, of mine in Italy have created a new organization called Apocrity, and they're busy doing training uh, for despecialization of physicians mm. so that those wow. that are coming in hyper specialized environments are 
now gaining the skills and they have mentoring programs and other things so that they can start providing direct care, primary care to patients on a, you know, often a fee-for-service basis, these new models that are coming out. But I, I think that um, it's multifactorial and, yep. and it's there's a lot of patient dissatisfaction with the, what's occurred over the last two years, I think for good reason. And, and I want to just say loud and clear, uh, the doctor to my side here is a great example. We have many <laughs> great physicians that have spoken the truth and continued to provide old school medical care. Uh, they have been subjected to all kinds of enormous pressures to not do this. Unbelievable. Uh, it's unbelievable. And yet yeah. they've still done it. And yeah. uh yeah. it's not and the entire profession some. that's corrupted. Many good people. Yeah. Yeah, I will. I will just say well, in addition. I, I, that was my fear too. There's this was this you know commercialization or or sort of uh, employization of physicians. On top of that, the, there is a centralization of decision making. While medicine has always been all about the decentralization of one physician and one doctor, one one patient making the, the best decisions on behalf of that patient, and we've taken that away and put it way up high somewhere. Where I mean, we did it with insurance companies, we've done it with hospitals, and now we've done it with employment-based medicine, and we're done it with public health. We've done it everywhere. And frankly, I, I for one, am disgusted and had enough of it myself. That's one of my big lessons from COVID. Kelly, I'll give you last thought. You guys, I've got to wrap this up. Kelly? Yeah, well, I was just going to say one of the saddest things to me, I just got a, 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 a flyer from UC Berkeley saying that uh, this coming school year, they're going to require masks for all people who have not received a oh. flu vaccine. Um, so mm. th this isn't going to end anytime soon. One of the saddest things of all, and I've said it many times, is that the average person has lost complete and total confidence in the uh, medical system, certainly in public health. And most alarmingly, they have lost faith in their God-given uh, immune systems. We No one's talking about things like yes. regular mm. exercise, adequate sleep, good nutrition, stress mitigation, supplementing vitamin D and zinc and all the things we knew were cheap and effective and would decrease not only your risk of getting COVID, but your risk of getting a heck of a lot of other things and things that would enhance your quality of life. We now, I fear, have uh, fomented a generation or two or more of people who honestly believe they should have fear of being around others, uh, that it's not safe to be in large spaces, uh, that masks mm. do something appreciable to stop uh, the spread of respiratory viruses, uh, that your best bet is to you know, hide in the basement, bathe in Purell, and hope to heck they launch another vaccine program. And that's a tragedy. And somehow we have got to uh, get ourselves out of that basement. Uh, and hopefully conversations like this one, even if you disagree with what I'm saying or what Dr. Malone is saying, yeah. uh, and you want to yeah. read the studies, at least it will open your eyes that this is not a way to live. Yes. And Dr. Malone, I'll give a final thought to you. Uh, amen. Uh, I want to vote for that woman <laughs> to be head of the AMA. Uh, I was going to say that. Uh, made him so happy. Uh, it's, it's, pleasure no she always nails it i don't know you know i'm i'm just grateful that uh, she's kind of come into the world of all of us that are talking and and i hope that at some point we get a chance to meet in person and 
and perhaps uh, do some speaking engagements together because I'm just really struck by her coherence and uh, her yep. honesty yep. and her passion. Mm-hmm. And uh, just like Dr. McCullough, she is very grounded in the literature. And I'm, I'm just uh, ecstatic to have been here. And thank you for the opportunity. And uh, we'll Thanks certainly bring us. you back. Uh, Dr. Victory will reinvite you if any time because we, we, there's many more <laughs> topics we can continue down the there's so much more to talk about here. I felt like, you know, this could have easily been three, four hours, but I'm trying to sort of craft it in such a way that we, you know, do an hour and a half and uh, leave people with some something to think about. And and Ke- Kelly, if we can put up those links, I think that'd be a great idea. Yeah, and come Absolutely. back soon. Absolutely, I'll send those. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate your thoughts and your candor and and carrying the torch. You've been uh, you've been carrying the crucible for quite some time and. Uh, it, it's not easy. I, you know, we've, we've been scrutinized. I, and I'm very, you know, the, my positions are such that to, it shouldn't be scrutinized. It's just ridiculous. But here we are. That's the world we live in. We, we have to be happy warriors. Um, uh, you know, it's a good, it's a worthy battle to fight. So uh, let's, let's think that we have the opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. Well, there you go. It's a nice way to look at it. Susan, you're leaning in. Did you want to say something? No, no. I'm just really happy. And Caleb, you had a quick question about something? It was a good show. Oh, yes. Caleb, you uh, cool? I did have a question, actually, about the... uh, It it kind of is on a similar topic, but I guess it's more pertinent to, I guess, censorship. Because I understand why YouTube and Twitter, what their motivations are to deplatform people that they believe are harmful. But I also believe that that is a terrible thing that almost always backfires because... To anybody who even slightly questions authority, a cover-up is always worse than the crime itself. So do you think that banning you has actually had the effect of worsening the conspiracy theories by making people imagine that something is much worse is happening that's being covered up than what the truth is? Uh, let's park this because this is another hour long. It's a big time. It's a big time. But I like that. I like that. Go ahead, Dr. Long. I just that you're a little bit naive, my friend. Uh, the data are coming out quite clear that the U.S. government has been directing these actions. Uh, and uh, let's save that for the next time we all come together. Good idea. Let's do that. And, and I like, though, that I like that Caleb also framed it in a statement, which is that when you don't expose the truth, you do get a Streisand effect. You do get more conspiracy theories. That's a fact. Right. However... One thing I am learning from all of this, all of my confusion about what was happening, there is a story. There's a story that's evolving. We heard Dr. McCullough tell it. We're hearing Dr. Malone tell it. Dr. Victory's been beating that drum for quite some time. And it's just kind of almost unbelievable for me as someone who had faith in the CDC and Dr. Fauci my entire career. Some of this decision-making and how they were influenced and their their rush to f- scare everybody and the vaccine Ubralis and the safety Ubralis policies were just so bewildering. And But here we are. So we will leave it at that. We will come back and we will start with the conspiracy theories when we return, guys. Thank you so much for being here, both of you. And Kelly, we'll see you next Wednesday. Who is it next Wednesday, Susan? You will. Um, it's uh, Paul Alexander. Paul, Paul Alexander, Alexander next Wednesday. Right. Make sure you get in touch with me about Matthias. Done oh, yeah. and done, my we friend. Thank you, guys. And for everyone else, uh, sorry there were no time for questions on uh, the Twitter spaces, but I think uh, 
we answered lots of questions without actually having any. So let's leave it at that, and we'll see everyone next. I'll see people tomorrow for a Q&A. I'll just answer questions okay. that people have. Dr. Malone, just waving goodbye. Not without your hand up, just waving goodbye. And uh, Dr. Kelly back next Wednesday. We'll see you then. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.